All right, we're going to open in prayer and get started. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us, that you gave us your word to show us how you would want us to live. And we just want to thank you for this time as we're going to go through the Bible and go through different places today to look at this message. And we just thank you for this day. We thank you for each person that's here. In your son's precious name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 9. For this cause also we, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's the verse we're reading. Uh, we're looking at today, we're continuing, Paul is addressing the Colossians and, and telling them that uh, he's heard good things about them. And he goes to this, that he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Now, I have one of the questions I hear quite frequently from people is, what is the will of God? So we're going to do a, quite a bit of walking around and looking through some scriptures here today to kind of look at the will of God. Now, first off, you need to understand when you're reading through the scriptures that are basically two different wills of God. There's his sovereign will as king. That is what is definitely going to happen. He is going to make sure it happens. And uh, that is the same thing as if a king says this is going to happen. It is going to happen. He's going to make sure it happens. And that's what, where we get the word sovereign will of God. Verses that are in this category are some are like Isaiah 53. And if you want to try to keep up with me, you can. But I'm not waiting because I've got a lot of verses to go through today. So <laughs> take notes if you need to know. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. But he has poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered among the transgressors, transgressors and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for transgression. We look at this, Jesus was the sacrifice. And it was the will of the Father and, you know, we hear oftentimes, you know, people will say, you know, who killed Jesus? Well, the answer to that is the father killed Jesus. And, you know, that's kind of harsh to say he killed him because we sinned. But the father is the one that put Jesus here to die. And even beyond that, we know that Jesus killed himself because before the foundations of the earth... The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together saying, we're going to create man. Man is going to sin, and Jesus, would you go and die for them? And he said yes. So in essence, he killed himself for our sin. Now, who were the human agents? Well, the Jews and the Romans and, our, and each one of us who have ever sinned were the human agents of his death. But it really was the Father putting him to death. Just as we just read, it pleased the Father that he should die. Not because of his death. And it goes back to our memory verse. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He wasn't pleased with the death of Jesus. He was pleased by the result of the death of Jesus. 
Jesus is paying for the sins of all of mankind so that mankind, if they accept that gift, could go to heaven. So that is what he was pleased in, but it was his will that the son would die. In Gethsemane, we look at Jesus being pressed to death. It said he sweat drops of blood. He was under so much grief and pressure. Satan was attempting to kill him in the garden, and Jesus said, your will, Father, if this is your will that I die here, it wasn't what we agreed to, but if this is your will, I'm going to die here. Or I'm going to the cross where I, where I thought I was supposed to go and where I'm supposed to go. And the angels came and ministered to him. And so we see Jesus bent to the Father's will. And the will of the Father was that he would go to the cross. In Proverbs 16, verse 33, it says, the, the lot is cast in the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is the Lord's. In other words, the Lord controls even the casting of the lots, which was a kind of a die or, or stick or whatever they had. But the Lord was in control is what, they, what he's telling them. When, you, when you're looking for what God is going to do, he is in control. And this is something that uh, sometimes we want to tr try to say, well, how is God in control of everything? Well, I don't know how he's in control of everything. He's God. He's more powerful than any of us. He knows more than we do, and he knows exactly what it takes to make things happen. We look at somebody like Saul of Tarsus. He's going to Damascus to go arrest Christians. And God appears to him in a bright light, knocks him off his horse, and blinds him. And he goes, uh, Paul, I've got a plan for you. Theoretically, Paul could have said, no, I'm not going to do it. Now, no sane person in their right mind, after they've been knocked off their horse, blinded, and heard the voice of God, is going to say, no, I'm not going to do what you <laughs> asked me to do. Now, it probably took Paul all of those things to be, basically, you're going to go do what I want you to do. But he theoretically could have said no. None of us would have said no. <laughs> None of us had knocked off our horse, being blinded with the bright light and hearing God's word would have said no. So God says, I'm going to have my way. You're going to do what I've asked you to do. In Proverbs 21, verse 1 and 2, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of the water, he turns it whithersoever he will. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the heart. How many times do we think the governments do what they want to do? God says, I turn their heart the way I want them to go. Now we think about this, and we, think, we might even think about our own government with how bad a direction it's going. God knows it. He allows it. God used Nebuchadnezzar to punish Israel. I don't know if you know much about Nebuchadnezzar's history, but Nebuchadnezzar was an evil, wicked person. He conquered people, and you know, especially their leaders and their royalty. He would strip them naked, stick a nose, hook, nose ring through their nose with a chain on it, and drag them wherever he was going until the nose was pulled off. And then he would, drag, then he would fetter them and drag them further. Yeah, he was not a nice man, and God still used him to discipline his children. God will use evil to accomplish his purpose. Because sometimes it takes evil to make us fall to our knees and repent. 
The whole book of Judges is all about that. The people did what was right in their own, own eyes. God judged them. They went into a captivity amongst the round, around the place. They'd finally say, okay, we've sinned. We'll go to God and ask for forgiveness. God would send them a deliverer in the, in, the, in the form of a judge who would deliver them. And they'd be good for about 10 or 20 years, and they'd start the process all over again. The whole book of Judges is all about that. God's will. And he uses evil sometimes to get us to turn to him. So people are not out there doing what they want, when they want, how they want, why they want. And you know, even we as his children don't always get to do that. How many times have you had your heart turned by God to do something that you didn't think you wanted to do? Now, will he sit there and say, you are going to do it? No, he will turn your heart. He will turn your heart. He'll make conditions so bad for you that you'll finally give up and say, God, I just uh, I surrender finally. You know, what is the hardest thing for most of us to do? And I hear this all the time when I, when I share somebody, I give them a verse, and one of the very first things that will come out of their mouth is, how do I do that? You know, how do I give thanks in everything? How do I make myself a living sacrifice? How do I give up this sin that so easily besets me? The answer is you surrender. <laughs> It's really easy. The funny thing about it is you get to the end and you finally surrender and you look back and say, why did I take so long to finally do what it was so easy to do in the first place? If you were inside your house and the police were circling your house and says, come out with your hands up, you have two choices. You can try to fight them and lose <laughs> eventually or you come out with your hands up in a surrender. God is asking us just to surrender. And when we can learn just to surrender and say, God, I don't know necessarily how to do this, but I'm going to let you do it. Life is a whole lot easier. And think about this. The times when you have been forced to surrender to God and turn over to his will, and you get done with it and you realize, wow, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was to get rid of whatever it is you were asked to get rid of, or to do whatever it is I was asked to do, because God is in it. Learn to surrender. Just learn how simple it is to just surrender. God, I give up. Help me learn to be able to do this completely. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a serious sin, some other area, some area of life you're, God's taking out of your life. And you know, there's things that God takes out of your life that ne aren't necessarily quote-unquote sin, but just things that take your time away from him? You know, what takes your time away from God? may not be sin, but if it's taking your time away from God, it's not a good thing. You know, how much time do you spend with God? And we've talked about this tithing your time. You know, how many of us spend 2.4 hours a day doing something for God? How about 16.8 hours a week? Now, there's some people around here who do. They're, in, they're in almost all the Bible studies, so they've got a good, they've got a good chunk of it right there. They're, they're here seven to, seven to eight hours a week just in Bible studies that we do. Still leaves them another 8.8 8 .8 hours to, <laughs> to fill with God. But do you ever consciously think about how much of my time belongs to God? Technically, all of it does, but do you tithe your time to God and say, God, this is your part of your time that I'm giving to you? Now, tithe goes long ways above money. Now, money is just the easiest thing for us to give up. Most people can give up their money a whole lot easier than they can their time to God. 
And it doesn't take long to get to this. All you got to do is spend a few hours, you know, a few hours reading your Bible and praying each day, and you'll cover it. Come to services, witness, pray, whatever it might be that God's asking you to do. Where are you putting your time with God? Ephesians 1, verse 11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, people don't like this idea of a predestined plan of God. But you know, God has already got a plan for us. It doesn't mean we're predestined to heaven or hell, but he's got a plan for us. How does he have a plan for us? Well, part of it is the fact that he is omnipresent. And you've got to remember, my definition of omnipresent isn't that he's just everywhere present at the same time. He's every time present at the same time. God is outside of time. He looks down on time just as we would look down on this piece of paper and say, I see the beginning and into this piece of paper. That is where God looks at it. He is with Adam and Eve right now. <laughs> He's already at the end of the millennial kingdom right now. He, nothing surprises him. So when he says he's got a plan, he already knows exactly how his plan is going to work out. So he has a plan, and he says, I have a plan for your life. And there are certain aspects of his plan that will happen. We think about, you know, well, how do we know it's going to happen? Well, we think back to Job. God is at the courts of heaven. The angels have gathered up and Satan shows up in the courts of heaven. Have you realized that Satan has access to the courtroom of heaven, the throne room of heaven? Even today, until he is finally thrown into the lake of fire, he has access to the throne room of heaven. And, if you re and we've talked about this. In the, in the medieval castles, you had the gate. And when you went into the, king, into the palace, the first room you entered into was the court that led into the throne room where the court was held. Any public person, any citizen could go into the throne room of the king and make their petition. Satan has access that far into heaven, the throne room. And just as he does with Job, God will say, well, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, yes, sure, I have, but you've got to throw a hedge around him. I can't touch him. And God says, you can do this. Do you realize how important this verse is for us to understand as Christians? Nothing can happen to us without God's permission to let it happen. I'm going to say that again. Nothing can happen to you without God's permission for it to happen. When you think something bad is really out of control in your life, God has allowed it. What's he allowing? Are you going to trust in him? I don't think anybody other than Job has gone through what Job went through. Okay? Job lost everything except for two things. He had his life, which he wished he didn't have with all the pain that his body was in, and he had his wife, which her advice to him was, Job, curse God and die. Yeah. How would you like that to be your, your, your closest comforter telling you curse God and die? Now, we don't know her motive behind it. You know, she could very much have been very much in love with him and so sad about the pain that he was in and saying, you know, Job, why don't you just get it over with? You know, just curse God and get it over with because I can't take seeing you in this much pain. 
or she could have been just an ill-religious wife who, did, who wasn't that good. I like to try to believe that she was motivated by her love for, for Job and said, just curse God and get it over with. I don't want to see you going through this much pain. But we've got to keep this in mind. Nothing can happen to us without God's permission. Now, it may seem like it's pretty severe sometimes, but you know, the more severe your test is, it really means that God knows that you're able to handle it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that there is no temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able to withstand, but will provide a way of escape, and that escape is Jesus Christ. So when you get a really hard test in your life, God is saying, I think you can handle this. Most of us are thinking back, you know, God, uh, I don't really agree with you on some of these tests you've put me through. But God says, I know that you can handle it. The harder the test is in your life means that he knows what you can handle. And what is he trying to show us? He's trying to show us that we can handle more than we think we can handle. He's trying to show us, do you really believe what you believe? Do I really believe that nothing happens to me without God's permission? If I do, then I say, thank you, God. Show me this test that you're putting me through and give me the strength to get through it. If I don't, I'm going, God, I think you've lost your mind. Uh, how can you put me through this? God, I've all of a sudden, don't believe this. I don't believe that this. I don't know how what I did to cause this, and you are out of control. But if I truly believe God's in control, then I go back to, I can thank you for what I'm going through. And his test is such as makes life difficult. <laughs> yeah. God knows what you can handle and he takes you to the breaking point because what does he want he wants you to turn to Jesus Jesus is the way of escape for everything that we have and the quicker we will trust that the better off we will be in first Peter chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil for evil doing for Christ also has once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit now these are the kind of verses we don't like Paul uh, Peter is telling the people it might be a good thing for you to suffer how many of us think it's a good thing to suffer you know, usually that is not our mentality. But you know, sometimes when you suffer, it's so that others can look at you and see your faithfulness in Christ and see how, how much God strengthens you and brings you through. Sometimes it is just to show, give you the capacity to have empathy with other people. If you don't suffer, then you're not going to have empathy with those who suffer. You're going to go, well, you just need to be like me, really strong and never have to go through any problems. Not really the answer you want to give to somebody when they're suffering. Now, if you're dependent upon Christ, you, hand, you can almost say all you got to do is you know, depend on Christ, and you really can because that is your way through it. But we suffer so that we know that others go through the suffering. In Hebrews, we're told that we have a high priest that is like us who has suffered all things and been tempted in all points just as we have been. Do you realize that Jesus was tempted in every way. Now, we're only told of the three temptations when he fasted for 40 days and Satan came to him, but that wasn't his only temptations. 
And those ones were really tough ones too. He'd been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes along and says, well, if you're the son of God, don't you just turn these rocks into bread and eat? If you had the power to turn a rock in the, into bread, and Jesus did, and you've been hungry for 40 days, would that be a temptation for you to use your power? Quite possibly. I don't know how many of you have done very long fast, you know, but you can get pretty hungry after 40 days. You get pretty hungry after about 35 days. <laughs> but, uh, but you can really be hungry at the end of 40 days. Then he comes along and says, shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, all of this will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. Now we kind of go, well, what's the big deal about that temptation? It should have been an easy one. Reality on this was Satan was saying, the Father wants to give you all the world, but to get the world, you have to die. I'm willing to give it to you without your dying. Now, when you think about that, it's almost a thing that uh, you might want to consider. Adam and Eve did. Take and eat this fruit because God knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And then the third one was just presume upon God by throwing himself off the temple. Actually, the second one and the other one was the third one. But we want to be very careful about those things. Now, there's other, there's other part of God's will that is we choose whether we're going to obey him or not obey him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our reasonable service, God's will in our life, that we be sacrificed. What does that mean? God, I give up my flesh. I give up what I want to do, and I would want to do what you want to do. Now, most of us can say that prayer, but when it comes to actually doing that prayer, isn't that a little more difficult? God, I really uh, know that you want me to do this, but I just don't feel like doing it. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about going out and, and sharing the gospel, witnessing. Go unto you unto all the world, teaching and preaching, baptizing and making disciples. How many of us actually ever go out and share the gospel? You know, this is something that is, we need to be doing. Our call and our goal is to go out, share the gospel, and then teach them how to be a good Christian. And yet, when it comes down to it, we'll get out there and go, maybe we're even really bold and go, God, I've got my track. I'm going to go talk to somebody. And then you look at the person that you're ready to talk to, Put the track in your pocket and walk the other direction <laughs> or walk right past them. Why? I don't know. Maybe, you know, for some people it's just afraid. Some people think I may, I may look silly. I may, I may look like a Jesus nut. I'd rather be a Jesus nut than a non-nut <laughs> for Jesus. Now, I want, I want to be before the Father and not, be, not have denied him before man. Now, but it is so important. If all you can do is give a track out, that's a good start. We've got tracks in the hallway. Give, you know, grab a couple tracks. Just, you know, when you go to the store, as you're on your way out, you know, and note that I say on your way out, give a track to two or three people, get in your car real quick, and get out of, <laughs> get out of the parking lot. If that's all you can do, it's a start. You know, we need to start somewhere. 
And as you start just passing out the tracts, eventually you might get bold enough to start talking to them about Jesus. But do you realize how important that is? Do you truly believe that there's a heaven and a hell? If you truly believe there's a hell, you should be greatly motivated to share the gospel with people. Because if they don't accept Jesus Christ, they're going to hell for eternity. For eternity. Not just days, not just years, not decades, not millennia. Eternity. That should motivate us to share, at the very least with our family and with our friends. But if it really understood the the horrors of hell, it would motivate you to share the gospel with anybody. Because there should be nobody that you want to go to hell. I don't even care if you have an enemy, you shouldn't want them to go to hell because of how horrible it is. So our first job is to be sacrificed, to be my own desires, be crucified and put to death. Thessalonians 5.18 is a great example. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus in, concern, in, God, in Christ Jesus concerning you. We're told right there that it's his will. Why are we going to give him thanks? We've covered this quite a few times already. Why? Because he's in control. He has a reason. All things work together for good for those who called according to the purpose of God. Not some things, not even most things. All things that happen to you work together for good. Now, we've brought out in that verse that does not say necessarily that all things work together for your good. All the verse says is all things work together for good. Don't put your in there because that's not a true statement. There may be suffering that you're going through for only one reason, so people can see how faithful you will be to God. There's going to be some things that hit you that are just not good. If you lose a spouse or you lose a child, there is nothing good about that event. Nothing. You know, we're not going to try to say there's something good about it. But God says he can turn it for good. It might just make you more empathetic with somebody else who's suffering. It might be somebody looking at you and saying, well, you've turned to God and you still trust God after that happened to you. You still trust God when your house burnt down and your cars all, all fell apart at the same day. And then you went to work and you lost your job. And you still trust God? Yep, I still trust God. And all of a sudden people look at you and go, how can you trust God when those kind of bad things happen? Because he is in control. So we look at these, his will. First Thessalonians 4. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessels in sanctification and honor, not in lust of conscience, even as the Gentiles which know not God. For no man that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of such, as we, all, as we also have forewarned you and testified. What is God's will? That we be sanctified. How is he going to sanctify us? 
Well, first off, what is sanctification? Becoming more like God. The ultimate goal is to be like him, which will happen at our death or at the rapture when we get our glorified body and God says, you are now what I said you were at the beginning. And remember, we've talked about the three parts of salvation. When you accept Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are declared perfect. Isn't it wonderful that God sees you as perfect? <laughs> he does not see your sin. He does not see your working to be perfect. He sees you and declares you to be perfect because when you, are, when you come to him, he strips off your flesh and your sin and your outer garments of, of your righteousness, which is filthy rags, and he puts on Jesus Christ and he says, there's my perfect child. Now we know we're not perfect, but I love the fact that God sees me as perfect. He has declared me perfect. And the example we use is a bankruptcy. You go into a bankruptcy judgment and the judge puts down the hammer and says, all your debts are forgiven. Now your creditors don't particularly care for that because now your, your debt is forgiven. They can't collect on it. And as far as the government's concerned, you don't owe a debt. And they gave you money on good, on good things. And that's what God says when he when he's give, makes us justified. You are perfect. You may still think you're not. Satan may try to convince you you're not. But you are perfect according to the courts of heaven. Then we spend our entire life, according to God's will, being sanctified. Being made perfect. And this is where we learn, as we, are we God's children or not? Are we becoming more like God with each passing day, month, year? And this is why I challenge people, look back over the time and say, am I more like God today than I was last year? Do I love people more? Do, am I more forgiving? Am I kinder? Am I, are there some sins that are no longer part of my life? He will make us sanctified if you are not being sanctified, you are not being made more perfect, then you need to look at your life and say, do I know God? Do I know God? If I am not going forward, am I one of his children? And only you can know that. Because a true relationship with God is to believe in Christ Jesus, which means put your whole trust and faith in him. And my example to that is, you know, because I've done... Uh, repelling down a, down, a, down a side of it. You put your whole rope of, of weight on that rope and hope that rope is going to hold you. Now, your hope is not blind. You, have, you hopefully have examined the rope. You know it's not cut. You know it's not frayed. You know it's not rotted. So you say, this rope can handle, hold me up, and you go down the, down the cliff. Another example that's used in the, in the way of the master is the idea of putting on a parachute. Now, you may totally believe that a parachute is going to work when you pull that cord as you jump out of the plane, but until you jump out of the plane, you can't say you believe it. All right? Another example is police officers with bulletproof vests. Now, they're demonstrated. They'll put them out on the shooting range, and they'll shoot, the, they'll shoot the vest, and the bullet won't go through the vest, and they'll go, okay, I know that that vest works. They don't usually truly believe that that vest works until they get shot, and the vest stops the bullet. This is the difference between a mental ascent of belief and a real belief. My belief in Jesus Christ is such that if it's not true, I have no plan B. I have no secondary idea of how I'm going to get to heaven. 
everything about it is Jesus. And if Jesus has lied to me, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know what? He hasn't lied to me. He hasn't lied to me in this life, and I know he's not going to li have lied to me about heaven and, and the way to heaven. I'm absolutely sure. And I've shared with you, I'm an administrator and a manager. I always have a plan B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> you know, go down the alphabet, how, what I'm going to do to fix things if this one doesn't work. I don't have another plan for heaven. It's Jesus or nothing. Because that's true faith. That is true belief in who he is. Micah chapter 6. Verse 8. He have showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Part of his, what is his will? We do good. How do we do good? We let him do it through us. Because none of our own righteousness is going to stand before God. So we say, God, I'm sacrificed to you. My flesh is destroyed. Work through me. I do justly. And I walk humbly. If we were to walk humbly, how many times do you get mad at somebody? What is it usually that you're mad about when you're mad at somebody? You have not treated me the way I think you should be treating me. You have not given me the respect I deserve. You have, not, you have not said the right things to me. You have not done what I want you to do. If you're walking humbly, it becomes a lot easier to say, well, I really don't like what you're doing, but I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to care for you. I'm still going to, you know, I'm still going to have fellowship with you. you know, but usually we get, well, you, didn't, you disagreed with me. I'm really upset with you. You know, my opinion really is what's important in this matter. You've got to agree with me or else. And because you don't agree with me, I'm going to get angry with you. you know, we need to be very careful with that attitude. There's very few things to get angry about that will not lead us to sin. Jesus got angry with the money changers in the temple. Why? Because they were making God's house a business. They were People were coming in with their nice perfect lambs they were looking them over and trying to find anything that they could say was wrong with them and if there wasn't they would make something wrong with them like an ink spot or something to tell them that they weren't perfect and they said well this one's not perfect you can't sacrifice it but we just happen to have a, a lamb over here that we can exchange this one for with a little extra money people were coming to worship God and then being told that what you're doing is not enough that angered Jesus. Angered him enough that he made a whip and chased them out of the temple. And I can guarantee he wasn't saying, get out of my father's house. It said he threw their tables over. He was angry. Not because of what they had done to him, but what they were doing to the father. There is a time for righteous anger. But make sure it's righteous anger. I've said more than once, if you're angry about something that has been done to you, it's probably not going to be righteous anger. If you're angry about something that's been done to somebody else, you might be able to do <laughs> righteous anger. Make sure it's righteous anger and that you don't go into sinful activities. But we're told that we're to do good. We're to love people. And the last verse we're going to look at is in 1 Peter again. 2.15. For th so is the will of God that 
in with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. God's will is that our life be such that when people try to say something against you, they cannot. Greatest example of this is probably Daniel. Daniel in, in Cyrus's court, number two man, people did not like him. It says they watched his life, they looked at his life to find something they can accuse him of. Now, I would love to say my life is so pure that nobody could find anything in it to make an accusation to me. I don't believe that it is. Even though I haven't done anything big, there's probably things that people could say, well, you've done this, or you said this, or you... They could find nothing against Daniel. So what they do, if you remember the story, they went to Darius and said, Darius, we need a new law. You know, you're such a great king and so wonderful, you should make a, a decree that nobody can make any prayers to any god or, or any person except for you for 30 days. And Darius being... Uh, a king and saying, well, that sounds really good to me. I think I'm really that special. And you're saying everybody agrees with you? Now, if he had been really smart, he would have gone and talked to Daniel and said, Daniel would have told him, well, that's not really a good idea, king. But he was flattered. And he said, well, we're going to make this law. As soon as they made the law, they ran to Daniel's house to see what he was going to do. Because they, they thought they kind of had Daniel no matter what. If he prayed to God, he was going to get punished and thrown into the lion's den. If he did not pray to God, they could go, well, see, you don't really believe in your God well enough to stand up to, to death. They thought they had him either way. Daniel prayed anyway. Just because he knew that he's going to honor God and that if he died, it was for God's sake, if God, and if God wanted him to live, he'd live, with, he'd live. And you know the story, he was thrown into the lion's den. And he got to sleep all night long with these hungry lions. They decided not to eat him. You know, and the king comes the next morning, drags him out, and says, okay, we're going to send all these other guys that had tricked me into making this law with their families into the lion's den, and the lions didn't even let them touch the ground before they ripped them to shreds. Those lions were hungry. God shut their mouths. What are we willing to do for God and his will? What is our life worth in comparison to his will? What are my desires worth compared to his will? My desires need to be to be sanctified, to do, to do the things that God wants me to do, to be crucified. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but the life I now live. I live according to the faith in Christ. He wants to kill us, our desires, and have them turned over to him. Why? Because in Matthew, he told the disciples when they said, well, we've given up everything. He goes, you haven't given up anything. If everything you've given up, you'll get a hundredfold in heaven. Our call in this world is to say, what am I going to give up for God willingly or by force? <laughs> but what am I willing to give up for God in this life? And I'm not really giving it up. I'm only giving it up for however long you live on earth. Now, whatever that might be. Maybe somebody's going to live to be 500, you know, but that's all you're giving things up for. And I always pick a big number because most of us aren't going to make it that high <laughs> in this day. But even if we manage to, what is even, let's say you live to be 1,000 years old, what is 1,000 years against eternity? To give up my rights to suffer on this world even for 1,000 years and then 20 trillion years from now look back and say, I don't even remember 
what I, what I sacrifice to him because it's so insignificant. We need to keep, in, and we've mentioned this several times now, we need to keep eternity in mind. When God asks you to do something, life is short. You know, most of us are even getting to that age where we understand how short life is. How fast does a year go by anymore for most of us? You know, we're getting ready to collect these Christmas uh, shoe boxes and it seemed like we just turned them in. We're getting ready to do the parade next month and it was like, didn't we just get done with the parade? Life is very short. And several trillion years from now, you're not even going to remember this life. You're just going to remember the gifts that you earned from this life. So we want to continue to work on doing God's will. We want to work on living out the way he wants, to bend our will to his, to allow him to do what he wants. And pray for it. Just as Paul said, for this cause also, since the day we have heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, that you would know his will and his wisdom and spiritual understanding. How do we get all of these things? We spend time with God's word. There is no other way to get to know what God wants but to go into his word. We get to know who God is and what he, what he cares for and what he doesn't care for by his word. We get to know what is sin by his word. We get strength by his word. We increase our faith by his word because it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We want to spend as much time in God's word as we possibly can eke out of our life. So when, you, when I say we give him two and a half hour or 2.4 hours a day, most of that should be in his word. Whether it's reading it yourself, listening to it on, the, on tape, listening to speakers on the radio. You, know, you could fill your day just by listening to the speakers on the radio. Now, I get a half hour to work and I'm listening to the, to the speakers on the radio. I get a little over a half hour coming out here from work. Or even from my house to work is about a half hour. I get to listen to a speaker each time I drive. When I'm in my office, I've got Christian speakers on the, on the, on the uh, internet most of the time. I want to fill my mind with God's word as much as possible. Studying his word so I can present to you all God's will. Spend time in his word. His word is a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. You know, Wherewithal shall a young man keep his way by taking heed according to your word. You want to stop some sin, you start getting into God's word and he will start crucifying that area of your life. Very powerful thoughts. How do we get this all? We spend time in the word. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? We wash it out with the word. You know, the world is trying to conform us to the world. You know, watch TV a lot and you'll, you'll find how conformed you get to the world. Because the TV is nothing but the world's point of view. Nothing but. Even those good handful of shows out there are still the world's point of view on the good. So get into his word. I'm not saying totally get rid of all your other entertainment, but spend time in God's word. If you're going to spend 12 hours a day on, on television, spend 12 hours in the Word to wash your mind out. 
Now, if you're going to spend four hours in the television, spend four hours in the Word to wash your mind. It's going to be critical. Whose thoughts are you going to spend time thinking? The world's or God's? God wants it to be his words, his thoughts. And you know the great benefit of this? When you're thinking his thoughts and you come into a situation, and you go through the situation without even thinking about what you do, and you look back on it and say, wow, I just did the right thing for once. Maybe twice, three times. But I just did the right thing instead of doing what I wanted to do. Why? Because my mind was on God's thoughts. And I walked through the trial without even recognizing it's a trial. How much of our decisions are done without hardly thinking? How many times have you snapped out at somebody with your own opinion and realized, uh, I shouldn't have said that? Why? Because your mind's full of the world's thoughts and not God's thoughts. How many times, I'm hoping you've had this experience too, have you said the right thing without thinking about it? You said the godly thing. Maybe they got to you right after you read your Bible and you read just the right situation for what you were going through. And when you get the presented the problem, the issue, your, your mind automatically went to the God's way of doing it and you said the right things. Hopefully that happens as well in your life. But you know it can. The more you spend time in God's word, the more you spend time learning his thoughts, the more you're going to have that happening. We're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, help us spend more time with you, whether it's personally reading the word ourselves or listening to messages and teachings. But Lord, help us to learn more. Have our minds be changed to think like you. Help us to be sanctified, which is your will, that we will become more and more like you as days go by. And that we will see ourselves saying and doing the right things as we go forward. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.